and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Here your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I am your host, Fred. That great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. Uh, so before we get into the show today, let me drop in a quick word about a really powerful project that is going on. It is called Sounds for Soldiers. It's a collaboration between maybe a dozen or so of us audio drama types. Uh, going to be sending CDs over to our men and women fighting um, on other shores. Uh, let, let me play you the spot. I'll let you know what this is all about. They serve so we can be free. For the men and women of the coalition forces serving overseas. Just living day to day can be draining. An email, letter, or package from home can be a wonderful escape for a serviceman or woman who is living with constant danger just outside the barracks door. That's why the member producers of AudioDramaTalk.com are banding together to send our servicemen and women an MP3 CD loaded with hours of great audio. It's not much. But it's a small token of our appreciation for their sacrifice. This is Greg Taylor of Dakota Ring Theater. This is John Bell of Bells in the Bat Free. This is Fred Greenhalgh of Final Rune Production. This is Julie Hoverson of 19 Nocturne Boulevard and Reality Productions. This is Jack Ward of the Sonic Society and Electric Vicuna Productions. This is Paul Mannering of Broken Sea Audio Productions. This is Jeffrey Adams of the Icebox Radio Theater asking you to please help us finance the Sounds for Soldiers campaign. At sounds, the number four, soldiers.org. A small tax-deductible donation can help us band together and send a thank you to the men and women that banded together to protect our freedom nearly a decade ago. Visit Sounds for Soldiers. That's Sounds, the number four, soldiers.org today. And for all of us, thank you. And there you go, soundsforsoldiers.org. Do hope you check it out and support that effort. Uh, really important little thing that we're doing. Um, anyway, so on to the show. Uh, today I'm very pleased to be sharing with you a series that really pushes the boundaries of audio drama as well as the podcasting form. Um, I'm shocked and, 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 and apologize to you for not sharing this earlier because it is awesome. Action-packed, huge cast, great music, and it shows what you can do with audio, uh, trotting across the globe, um, always searching for more adventure, taking on really tough environments. Um, this would be a multi-million dollar thing if it was uh, a movie. It would be in the hundreds of millions of dollar budget because it's audio. I think it's a much more reasonable budget, but it still goes um, you know, underwater, up into the sky, uh, mech warfare, all kinds of awesome stuff. The show, if you have not heard of it yet, is called The Leviathan Chronicles. Um, it's another one of those that if you are into the modern audio drama scene and you haven't heard it, you do not know what you're missing. Uh, you're in for a treat. Uh, this thing is about as addictive as the TV show Lost and just as exotic. Um, like I said, it goes from 20,000 feet below water to across continents or through time as quick as you can bet an eyelash or a twitch your ear or whatever. Um, it's also a bit of a phenomenon. Uh, if you look at all the active stuff going on, on their Facebook page, uh, a lot of people are saying really great things about it. And as soon as you listen, you will know why. Uh, we're going to dump you right into the middle of the first season, episode 13, because I think you're one of those smart, savvy listeners. Um, it's also an achievement in science fiction audio. In this episode, we have the mysterious and badass thief dude uh, Harlequin. He leads the main character, McCallan, as well as some other compatriots, Catulli and Anton, into a secret base to learn about the recent assassination of one of their own immortals. Immortals, right. So you might be a little bit lost about star stones, immortals, and all that stuff, but if you do want to know more, and I'm sure you will, go back to listen to episode one at leviathanchronicles.com. You get the whole story there. So I just want you to experience episode 13, and we will be talking to the series creator, Christoph Laputka, right after this show. Um, they are about to release the final episode of the first season, so you can have a, a continuous and total Sonic experience. I think you'll enjoy this. Do note, this is violent in some parts and it's got some naughty language, so, you know, protect your kids. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far. 
After the brutal attack in Mumbai, McAllen and Tully are taken to London by Anton to find a rogue immortal known only as Harlequin. The three of them solicit Harlequin to assist them in infiltrating Nankatsu Industries. The monsters that killed Othello in Mumbai left behind a tooth filling that Senshin traced back to the hidden laboratory. Harlequin is reluctant and proceeds to tell McAllen the origins of the rebel movement how an assassination attempt by Senshin against Evangeline accidentally murdered thousands of immortals. Harlequin agrees to help the rebellion, but McAllen senses he may have ulterior motives. He pressures her to align herself with him and renounce any involvement with the immortals' civil war. She reminds him that if she does nothing, the deadly signal virus that is still traveling around the world will kill them all anyway. Meanwhile, Oberlin Sinclair still remains missing after being kidnapped by Wit Roberts. His current whereabouts are unknown. And now, Chapter 13, The Fortune Cookie. The condors streaked across the sky, high above the Shetland Islands of Scotland. The plane was nearly invisible to the naked eye. Its active photocloak system changed the color of the condor's surface to match its surroundings, in this case, a shimmering pale blue. But even without maintaining the same color as the sky, the condor would have been impossible to see from the ground. It was traveling at over two times the speed of sound. McAllen and Tully sat in the main cabin, familiarizing themselves with the various pieces of equipment that would be needed in their infiltration of Nankatsu laboratories. Anton and Harlequin sat in the cockpit of the Condor, planning the quickest and most discreet route to their destination near Japan. We should get high over the Barents Sea before we turn east towards Siberia. I want to stay above the Arctic Circle before we drop towards Nishinoshima. I'm setting the computer to activate afterburners before we pass over Svalbard. That could be dangerous. The initial burst of afterburners is when the Condor is most vulnerable to detection. You should let me fly the plane manually as we enter Russian airspace. I don't think that's a wise idea. The computer has all of the radar monitoring stations listed in its navigational database. I know, but given my experience, I probably know more about their defense network than the computer. Then let's just say I think the plane has a steadier hand than you. I am quite aware how to fly the Condor. So is the computer. Stay here and monitor communications and system function. I'll be back shortly. Anton rose and left the cockpit. Harlequin was furious, but he showed no evidence of it on his face. Once he was sure that he was alone, Harlequin reached inside one of his pockets and took out a small black disc about the size of a hockey puck. Holding the device in his hand, he reached far underneath his seat to where he could feel the vent that sat over one of the Condor's primary CPU clusters. The disc snapped down magnetically and Harlequin pulled his hand back quickly. Much as he tried to prevent it, a small grin crept across Harlequin's face. Anton walked back into the main cabin. McAllen and Tully were sitting on opposite sides of the floor, packing their gear into black rubber backpacks. They were going over the infiltration plan and quizzing each other. Harlequin's plan shows a laser field on the third floor. For that, we use the flash detonator. It fills the room with light at the same resonance frequency as the lasers, but we have to use special goggles to prevent eye damage. Good. You got this. What about the cameras on the inside perimeter? We use photocloak shields unless we detect infrared scanners. I'm very impressed by our star pupils. Pretty soon the two of you will be able to give Harlequin a run for his money. I think I like being a cat burglar for the clothes. It certainly would be an improvement, Mr. Tully. Now if you finish studying for your exams, I could sure use your help in the cargo hold. I want to switch out some of the fresh air tanks for the aqua scooters we'll be using when we land. They're pretty heavy. Both McAllen and Tully rose. Actually, just you, Mr. Tully. McAllen, would you do me a favor? Could you go up to the cockpit and watch Harlequin? I just want an eye kept on him. You know I don't trust him. I got that impression. I'll be right back, Tully. Tully didn't like the idea of Harlequin being alone with McAllen, but after seeing a slight nod, he realized that this was not the time for a fight. McAllen walked to the cockpit and sat down next to Harlequin, who was typing on the keyboard next to the communication station. Oh, McAllen. Did the airplane pilot invite you up to the cockpit? I'm afraid I'm all out of lapel pins, but I'm sure there's a toy plane in the back that the stewardess will give you. What were you working on? I was trying to determine what kind of fuel the Condor uses. I thought I might be able to find a place along the way to refuel. Couldn't Anton just have told you... You know, I knew your parents. My parents? John and Teresa Orsel. They were the youngest immortals in the world. The last ones to be made. That is... Of course, before you. When did you know them? About 150 years ago, when we were all still living in Leviathan. They were very talented scientists. Your grandmother, too. They wanted you to do this. What do you mean? McAllen, 
This is difficult. You weren't just born for this destiny. You were bred for it, literally. Your parents didn't want a daughter. They wanted a lifeline. They needed you in case the rebellion succeeded. They knew that gene manipulation would be the key to immortality. But isn't that a giant coincidence? That I'm a genetic scientist that has been genetically created? No, don't you see? It's not a coincidence at all. Everything about you was bred intentionally. Your hair, your fingerprints, your favorite flavor of ice cream, your intellect. And yes, even the fields of study that you would be most inclined to pursue. Everything about you was planned, McAllen. Designed, like ordering off a menu. What? They have that power, McAllen. That was the essence of the rebellion, to reject Evangeline and instead genetically create what they needed. You, the only person that might have the ability to manipulate a star stone, like Evangeline. You are practically her genetic twin. You are the rebellion's queen bee. The what? Without the queen, the hive dies. Only you and Evangeline have the power to use a star stone to renew and re-energize the cells of all the other immortals. Did you ever think what might happen to you if the rebellion discovers that their experiment failed and you can't convert a star stone? Shut up, Harlequin. How did they do it? How did they make me? When Evangeline learned that Sension was planning to expose her to a virus that would revert her back to a normal human, she designed a device that would restore her immortal genes. This was the device you found in the cedar elm disguised as a keyhole. But the genetic work that went into designing the keyhole had ramifications far beyond Evangeline. Sension stole the plans for this genetic manipulator and gave it to your parents. They, in turn, used it as a foundation to create the grow tanks in which you were created. I beg your pardon, but grow tanks? Is it so hard to believe? Did you really think the rebellion would kill off Evangeline and leave themselves with no way to perpetuate their immortality? No. That's the reason why you were created. And the person that controls you, controls Leviathan. I don't know what you're talking about. Nobody controls me. Nobody... <laughs> <laughs> ah, the hell was that? Tully and Anton sprinted into the cockpit. McCallum quickly got up and let Anton sit in the pilot chair. What the hell happened? Sounded like a missile got fired at us. A MiG-31 just made visual contact 20 seconds ago. Impossible. We have full jamming and photocloak active. Then it must have homed in on the afterburners. That or the pilot fired visually and took a blind shot at us. I told you to let me fly the damn plane, Anton. You do realize if the MiG switches to guns and knocks out our photocloak that they'll send up the whole Russian Air Force to nail us. Too late. Our left tail fin just became visible. Wait, can't we just fire a missile back at the MiG and take it out? The Condor has no offensive capabilities. Then we gotta think of something. Cool, we're always open to your brilliant ideas, Mr. Tully. I have one. Strap yourselves in. Anton, take the Condor off that damned autopilot and let's fly it together. Anton punched a security code into the keyboard, and with a brief shudder, the smoothness of the autopilot was replaced by the slight instability of Anton and Harlequin flying the Condor manually together. There's not much time. I want you to go subsonic and kill the afterburners. We need to keep dodging left and right, but let the MiG slowly gain on us. He's firing! Missile away! Hang on! The Condor violently spun off to the right, twirling itself upside down twice. McAllen saw the missile streak by the windshield of the cockpit and explode 100 yards in front of them. Now, cut left! The MiG is closing. Now within 400 meters. That's gotta be gun range. We've got to bring him in closer. What? Anton, pull up hard. Try to get us vertical. Hold on! MiG is pursuing. Now within 300 meters. The pilot's pressure suit will need a few seconds to inflate to prevent him from blacking out. He'll be disoriented for a brief second in the climb as the blood rushes out of his head. He's firing! I can't express how curious I am to learn what exactly you have in mind, Harlequin. This. The fuel gun! Now within 200 meters. He's gonna hit us. Now will be a good time to- Harlequin! Afterburners, now! The Condor shot straight up. The MiG, which had inched in so close to the Condor, was now engulfed in an inferno. And as the sky became darker and McAllen could see the curvature of the Earth before her, the Condor leveled out at 150,000 feet. Any sign of it? No. No sign of the MiG. Then let's just say that we got lucky. Thank you, Harlequin. Well, that was quick thinking. You saved us. Well, don't thank me yet. Why not? Because that little maneuver just cost us 60% of fuel supply. We are dangerously low on fuel. Do we have enough to make it to Nankatsu's secret laboratory? The computer says we'll have enough fuel if we enter a long-range glide over Hokkaido, but that will probably eat up the last of the fuel supply. Then how exactly are we supposed to get the hell off the island that we're breaking into? Most good thieves use something called a getaway car? So eloquently put, Mr. Tully. However, good thieves also know how to improvise, don't they?
The Condor raced over the coast of Hokkaido at an altitude of over 125,000 feet. Just past the island, it cut its primary engines. The aircraft entered a slow glide, assisted by tiny bursts of stabilizing propulsion from the auxiliary engines. McAllen looked out the front cockpit window and was amazed by what she saw. From the aircraft's tremendous altitude, she could see almost the entire island chain of Japan. Continents had definitive shape, and she felt godlike, as if she was looking at a map of the Earth as opposed to flying over it. But what really amazed her was the sound. It was quiet. There was no low rumble of jet engines as she had always mentally associated with a view this high. McAllen leaned forward to get closer to the window, to feel at one with the glide, and it made her feel utterly alive. Answers. That's what's in here. Answers. An hour later, the Condor gently set down in the Sea of Japan with the help of the plane's massive hover fans. After floating on the surface for only an instant, the cockpit once again retreated into the body of the aircraft as the Condor sunk 70 feet underwater and entered hydroscram mode. Days before, back in London, Harlequin had pieced together a blueprint of Nankatsu's laboratory. He knew the island had several radar arrays that monitored all air activity in the area. The Condor would lose what little stealth profile it still possessed after the MiG attack through the process of the four team members entering and exiting the aircraft above the surface. So instead, Harlequin decided on an aquatic infiltration. The majority of the installation is actually below ground. It appears to be powered by the thermic activity of the volcano that sits next to it. That's like Leviathan? Yes. Pretty advanced stuff. So you can imagine what their defenses are like. We'll exit through the airlock and use the aqua scooters for our final approach and penetrate the facility underwater. McAllen, Tully, Anton and Harlequin went to the rear of the Condor and donned black suits with built-in hoods that were made out of a material McAllen could not identify. Are these suits made of neoprene? They don't seem very thick. Don't worry. The water's about 45 degrees, but this suit has electric heating which should keep us warm. Should. Change of plan. We'll each stay in two teams of two. But I've decided that I want McAllen with me. That's not our agreement. You said- I know what I said. The fact remains. I was reviewing the schematics during the flight over Russia, and my infiltration team has to negotiate a small ventilation crawl space to enter one of the security nerve centers. Much as you've managed to keep your girlish figure, Anton, McAllen will have an easier time getting through than either you or Tully. No more games, Harlequin. This is real. Of course it is. Now let's get into the airlock with the scooters and begin. As Anton and Harlequin loaded the scooters into the airlock, McAllen quickly grabbed Tully and pulled him aside. Tully, listen, I know you don't get along with Anton, but please, just just keep it together out there. <laughs> Is that a little concern I detect? Come on, the greatest thief of our time put together this snatch and grab. I have a lot more faith in him than I do Anton. This guy knows what he's doing. We're gonna be fine. Tully, be careful. Hey, hey. I appreciate the concern, but I'll be fine. You know me. Yeah. Yeah, I know you. And before Tully could think, McAllen reached behind his head and pulled his lips towards hers. That's your incentive to come back in one piece. Consider me, uh, incentivized. All set. The four of them put on clear face masks that contained integrated communication systems so that they could speak underwater. The airlock door shut behind them, and the chamber began to fill up with the icy water of the Pacific. After everyone had equalized their ears, the outer door opened, and the four of them swam out into the dark water. Harlequin, what kind of mixed gas are we breathing? Is it trimix? Something far more sophisticated, but the principles are the same. The underwater scooters resembled stripped-down wave runners, but longer. In the front, on either side of the turbine sat two large tanks that contained a mixed gas combination that would allow the team to breathe with minimal decompression. A small computer sat recessed within the body of the craft that displayed depth, temperature and other readings to the pilot, as well as an integrated GPS display. Harlequin had already programmed the first set of coordinates into the computers. All right, boys and girls, we've got about 30 miles to cover underwater to get to Nishinoshima. Once we get near the laboratory, we've got four challenges ahead of us. First is an 
electric sensor net. It lies about a mile off the coast. Anything that touches it gets fried. If we cut it, it triggers a massive alarm. The net starts at the surface of the water and drops down to almost 6,000 feet. Doesn't the human ribcage collapse after the first few thousand feet? We're not going to swim under it. We're going to swim through it. What do you mean? I thought you said touching it turns you into a McNugget. Well put, but that's not our plan. The island of Nishinoshima was volcanically formed, so it's like a giant upside-down ice cream cone. It gets very deep very quickly. But on its eastern side, there's a narrow spine that juts out about two miles from the island where all the lava runoff has accumulated. I'm sorry, but I don't follow. There's a point where the sensor net falls to ocean floor, or this case, a cliff, at only 400 feet underwater. My satellite photos identified long sets of tracks on the beach of the island leading back and forth from the dunes to the ocean. What kind of tracks? Turtle tracks. What? If turtles can get access to the island to lay their eggs safely. But just because a turtle can squeeze its body through a hole in the cliff doesn't mean we can fit our scooters through it. What makes you think the hole is big enough to pass our scooters through? Because luck favors the bold, Anton. Once they arrived at the underwater cliff, the team descended to 400 feet underwater. At that point, Harlequin permitted the use of lights, and the team started scanning the surface of the cliff for an opening. The cliff was enormous, like a giant knife thrust outward from the island, and although it was very fine, McAllen could make out the deadly sensor net that was draped like a curtain. McAllen couldn't get over their depth. She was riding a scooter underwater in pitch black at 400 feet. It was amazing and terrifying at the same time. Harlequin, I think I found something. The team sped over to see Anton's light shining into a small cave. I can't see the other end of it. Yes, but look at the fan coral moving back and forth at the entrance to the cave. That's current. It must spit out on the other side of the sensor net. This is it. Harlequin flew his scooter into the narrow cave and came back out less than a minute later. Be very careful. The cave gets very narrow in the middle. All four scooters banked leftwards in unison and entered the cave one by one. Harlequin led again, followed by Anton, McAllen, and Tully bringing up the rear. Man, Harlequin wasn't kidding. The cave is tight. I've only got about a foot on all sides. Feels like it's getting narrower. Can't be. Just stay calm, McAllen. You've been diving your whole life. There's nothing to be... Hey, McAllen, are you all right? Your breathing is starting to get pretty heavy. I'm okay. It's just... This cave is really... This cave is really deep. I can't see where it starts or ends. What if we get lost in here? What if we get lost in the rock underwater? It's okay, McAllen. Just breathe. The scooters approached the narrowest point in the cave. And with her light, McAllen could see Harlequin riding his scooter side saddle to wiggle it through the tight opening. She could hear the plexiglass of his faceplate scrape against the rocks. Anton went next, and McAllen saw him actually get pinned between his scooter and the rock. He stood still for a moment and was finally able to maneuver himself out. McAllen went next and fought the urge to close her eyes. Here, it was not her imagination. The cave was tightening all around her, almost hugging her body in an embrace. Her thigh brushed against the rock, which made her suddenly jump, causing her head to hit hard against the roof of the cave. Finally, Tully began to make his way through, narrowly pushing his body through first, when suddenly, a moray eel shot out of one of the small crevices and sank its teeth into Tully's right arm. His head smashed hard and he knew he was bleeding. It's biting again, do something! Anton reached back through the cave and stabbed the eel two inches below its head. It twitched for a moment and then fell dead and lifeless on the floor of the cave. Tully, are you okay? That thing got two big bites on me. I know it broke from the suit. It's probably infected. We should. What we shouldn't do is waste time. Every minute at this depth adds five more for deco. We need to hit the shoreline well before sunrise. I'm okay. Thank you, Anton. Thanks. Well, it looks like your scooter didn't fare as well. The wings are smashed. You must have hit it when you were fighting with the moray. So you'll have to double up. Anton and Tully, you share one scooter. Disconnect your faceplate and attach the hose on the other scooter's auxiliary port. (laughs) 
We're through, but we're behind schedule. From here, we split up. McAllen and I are going to the surface of the island. There's a tunnel there that leads to the primary power relay. You and Tully need to get inside the facility from the water. The schematics indicate that there's a submarine bay on the north side of the facility. You can approach it by scooter. But before you enter the bay, you must wait for the signal from McAllen and I. We are going to produce an energy spike. Won't that set off all kinds of alarms? I don't believe so. The security system is actually governed by a very sophisticated computer AI. It looks for anomalies against the base case. In other words, variations in heat, electricity, carbon dioxide. But if the general level of heat is brought up in a given chamber, the two of you would be practically invisible to the computer. If we can cause a sudden spike in volcanic activity, it will cause an electrical surge that will temporarily blind the computer because the surge will be uniform amongst all of its circuits. Since the surge is naturally caused, i.e. the volcano, our presence shouldn't be detected. Sounds good in theory. Yes, in theory. We don't have much time. You two head to the sub-bay and wait for my signal. Go now. The entrance to the sub-bay stood at 60 feet underwater. Even though the pair had completed the required decompression to 60 feet, Tully realized that they would still have to get back to the surface pressure somewhere within the laboratory facility. Tully and Anton could see the lights of the submarine bay far off in the distance. With the little bit of ambient light that it provided, Tully felt like he was flying thousands of feet high on the scooter. The submarine bay looked like a giant metal window carved directly into the side of the cliff underwater. We wait here until we hear from Harlequin. Once he blips the circuit, how much time do we have? According to him, we'll have under 90 seconds before the AI compensates for the surge and reinitializes the sensors. There's an airlock 20 meters inside that will take us inside the actual facility. My arms hurt pretty bad from that field attack, but I can probably cover 20 meters in 90 seconds. Once on the shore, McAllen and Harlequin hid behind a large dune beside a utility road. See that building right there? Yeah. Well, that's no building. That's the entrance to the tunnel that leads directly down into the heart of the island. It's volcanic heart. Although it will be a bit tricky getting in. Why? There's a laser field that covers most of the ground around the entrance. Well, that's easy. Can't we use the flash detonator to neutralize the laser frequencies? That... No, not for a space this large. The flash will dilute after about 15 meters. We need to come up with the alternative means of infiltration. Here, put these on. Harlequin reached into his backpack and pulled out a set of gloves and something that resembled crampons that fit over the boots they were wearing. These feel heavy. They should. I don't get it. What are these? There. A large supply truck rambled over the utility road in the distance. Harlequin jumped out from behind the dunes and placed a log halfway across the road and then leapt back into the cover of the dunes. Wait. Just... Wait. The utility truck motored along until it reached the log. While there was just enough room for the truck to maneuver around the obstacle, it had come to almost a complete stop to slowly get around the log. Quickly, go now. The two of them sprinted in darkness. Grab my hand. He pulled her underneath the truck and affixed her hands on a flat section of the undercarriage. To her surprise, her hands stuck like glue. Now lift up your feet. Before she knew it, she and Harlequin were affixed like spiders underneath the utility truck, moving at 40 miles per hour towards the entrance of the tunnel. McAllen's head was only inches from one of the rear wheels that kept kicking gravel towards the side of her face. <coughs> she turned away from it and saw Harlequin hanging upside down as well, grinning at her. Stay quiet until we get through the tunnel. The guard at the entrance checked some papers and then waved the truck through. McAllen knew the instant they had entered the interior of the facility. The temperature rose by 20 degrees. Oh, yeah. We're heading into a volcano. When I say drop, I want you to push your legs down first and then turn your hands inward to disconnect. Keep your hands at your side and roll towards me. Ready? Drop. You could have told me that that was the plan. I almost got my face scraped off. Hmm. We could always rebuild it and give it a completely new identity and then you wouldn't have to be bothered by any of this. We have a mission. People have died. Yes, yes. Over here. Harlequin ran over to a grey door on the side of the tunnel that had a padlock on the doorknob. He quickly got on one knee and began picking the lock. As we get further into the facility, most of the locks have electronic keypads. That's not normally a problem, but too many incorrect entries will draw the attention of the cameras and the facility's AI. But once you do your job, the entire defence network will go temporarily blind. And what exactly is my job? This. There's a massive ventilation fan underneath here. It's 
preventing a lot of the heat that would otherwise make this place unbearable. Is that what I'm going into? No, that is. Harlequin pointed to a small rectangular duct close to the ceiling. What? I'll never fit in there. Do I look like an Olsen twin? You're going to do fine. I won't even be able to move. I can't... You have to. You'll have this to help you. Harlequin took a long rod about 15 inches long with handles on each end. In the middle of the rod were a series of four wheels. What does that do? It frees you from the burden of having to move. That's what you were so worried about. Uh, Harlequin, it's just too small. It's so narrow. What if I can't breathe? Then your grandmother will die. Then you will die. Then Othello died for nothing. Stop your damn whispering and get in the fucking duct. You wanted this. I offered you a way out, but you didn't want it. You wanted to save everybody. Well, now's your chance. I hate you. I'm afraid there's no distinction in that. Harlequin removed the duct plating and hoisted McCallan inside. He placed a radio receiver in her ear and gave her a small bag to keep in front of her. Her arms were extended out in front of her and she had to shimmy forward to get her legs in. Once inside, she couldn't move in any direction more than a few inches. Oh my god, Harlequin, it's so hot! There's this searing wind that's burning my eyes! You're getting sulfuric wind directly off the volcano. It's going to irritate you and will be hotter than an oven. You've just got to move quickly, McCann. I'm trying, but I can't move. There's no room. It's too hot. I can't move. Take it easy. It's all right. I want you to use the crawler I gave you. Turn the handle forward and hold it against the floor of the duct. <gasps> it feels better to be moving forward, doesn't it? Now you're going to continue forward for another five minutes. Soon, you'll come to an access hatch that will be located directly over one of the primary thermic vents of the volcano. You need to open it and drop in the cesium grenade that you have in the pouch in front of you. It's really getting hot in here. I'm feeling dizzy. Stay with me, McCallan. I feel so itchy. I can't move. I want to be able McCallan, you've got another few minutes to go. Got to concentrate on my voice. Concentrate on my voice. Oh. Uh, I think I see it. There's a vent coming up. It's leading downwards. There's a lot of light. Looking down, she found herself suspended 500 feet above a roaring volcano. She was practically trapped in the vent. Her eyes were burning not just from the sulfuric gas but the intense brightness of the inferno below her. Equally amazing were the man-made struts that interlaced the volcanic vent. Catwalks and ductwork and massive drums were integrated with this violent outcropping of nature. McCallan, quickly. I need you to drop the cesium grenade into the volcano. It'll arm itself on contact. Just drop it in and send the activation signal to Antoine. Hurry! McCallan let the grenade, which was the size of a small softball, drop from her hands and fall 500 feet into the heart of the volcano. McCallan pulled back her face in time, but she could smell that some of her hair had been burnt. The volcano began to rumble deeply and then grow to a shouting roar. She turned the handles of the crawler backwards and the wheels reversed direction, pushing her back the way she came, feet first. The heat was unbearable, and sweat was dripping from every pore in her body. The hot wind blowing through the duct was now a hurricane gust that forced her to close her eyes. <sighs> Harlequin! I did it! I activated the grenade! I did it! Oh my god! Oh my god, I hated that event. It was so disgusting, so hot. Harlequin? Four menacing guards were staring back at her brandishing machine guns. Harlequin stood behind them. That's your spy, gentlemen. Seize her. Oh, fuck. There's the signal. Take a deep breath because we have to swim the rest of the way. How long a swim do you figure it is? It doesn't matter. You have to make it. I'll make it. We've got about 80 seconds left. Let's move. Anton and Tully swam away from the tethered scooter and entered the submarine bay of Nankatsu's laboratory. The bright lights stunned their eyes as they had been in the shadows of the ocean for hours now. Tully knew that there wasn't going to be much time for adjustment. He could feel his lungs begin to pound and they were still 25 yards away. Tully wanted to burst out of the surface and gasp for air, but he knew he couldn't risk being seen. His anxiety grew and his arm began to feel numb. They were getting close. They were almost there. Almost there. Shh, control your breathing. You're being too loud. Well, I think we might have had our first bit of luck. It looks like the sub bay is deserted. Hey, 
That must be the airlock door over there. Good eye. There's a ladder on the far side. We can make our way up there. As Tully climbed the ladder, he looked around the submarine bay and was amazed at what he saw. He had been around submersibles all of his life, but he had never seen vehicles like this. Hanging on cranes and sitting on skids were some of the most advanced-looking submarines that he had ever dreamed of. He counted at least ten subs and maybe a dozen other ROV or robotic vehicles. He and Anton had just made it to the top of the ladder and were walking towards the airlock when... Go! Anton shoved Tully to the ground as shots were fired towards them. These weren't security guards. These were professional soldiers and they were trained to kill. Anton reached into his black backpack and pulled out a thin gun with a narrow 12-inch barrel. We've got 40 seconds, Tully. Behind you. Anton unloaded two shots directly into the guard's neck. Tully, give me some cover. Got it. Every shot of Tully's was met with five of the guards, but Tully managed to get a close enough shot to scare the guard back into taking cover. Anton sprinted towards the airlock door. He placed a metallic square over the keypad like a hood. Anton ran back for cover while the codebreaker did its job. How much time? 30 seconds left. No, I mean, how long will it take that thing to break the code? Well, it depends how long the code is. Shit! What's shit? It's a nine-digit code. Shit! I'll get the door open. You take care of the guard. What the hell do you think I'm trying to do, asshole? Only 15 seconds remained when the guard ran out of ammo. Tully did a flying leap over the tool station where the guard had hidden and brought the butt of the pistol down hard on the temple of the guard's skull. Yeah, that's how I roll. We got the code, Tully. Come on. Tully quickly shot two rounds of the specialized darts into the unconscious guard's chest. Hurry! Well done, Mr. Tully. Uh, uh, thanks. Uh, good job getting the door open. What were in those darts? Some sort of sleep agent? No. Nerve toxins. What? Those were death darts? Why bother with darts? Why don't you just bring a 357 and blow everybody away? Because, Mr. Tully, that would be noisy, messy, indiscreet, and stupid. How's your arm? Hurts. Good. After 20 minutes of painful decompression, where Tully felt his ears would explode, the other side of the airlock opened, and Tully and Anton finally entered the secret advanced materials laboratory of Nankatsu Industries. These are photocloak shields. This will keep us hidden from the internal camera array. You should unfold the devices to body length and keep them in front of you like a shield. For someone walking head-on, you will appear to be invisible. But anybody approaching from behind will be able to see you plain as day, so be careful. What if there's a camera behind us? Then I hope you can run quickly. Great. The inside of the lab facility was sparkling white and immaculately clean. The airlock seemed like a massive industrial intrusion to the clean lines that permeated the facility. Tully didn't see any door, but he noticed a camera at the far end of the corridor. Anton typed a message to Harlequin. We're in. Where do we go from here? The blueprints show that the main computer banks are two levels lower down a long corridor. The two of them slipped into one of the stairwells off to the side and proceeded down two flights of stairs where Anton had to use the code breaker again to open the stairwell door. Once the door was unlocked, Anton slipped a small fiber optic cable underneath the door to determine the location of the camera in the hallway. The corridor is empty. Camera on the high right wall. So we walk towards it? Exactly. Anton and Tully exited the stairwell and walked towards the direction of the camera when suddenly... I've heard Tanaka-san is no longer selling our work directly to the Japanese military. Our work is being sold is not a concern. We are paid well enough for our efforts. You know the work we've been doing. And who do you think our new mystery customer could be? I've heard whispers about Chinese activity very deep. Nonsense. A Japanese company like us would never agree Quick, to work in the supply closet. I'm just saying that some of the support staff... I spoke. Okay? Always the ones without families. They can't be... What the... What's wrong? Shit! What? Your arm! In all the commotion, Tully didn't realize that his arm had started bleeding again. Outside in the corridor, there was now a trail of blood leading right to the supply closet. The two scientists were horrified by what they saw. They nodded silently to each other and began turning the door handle. listening to the Leviathan Chronicles by Christoph Leputka. For more episodes and information, log on to www.leviathanchronicles.com. And that was episode 13 of the Leviathan Chronicles. Woohoo! Crazy stuff. Thank you, Christoph. We're actually about to talk to Christoph about uh, this whole show, the phenomenon, 
how it's gone and where he sees it's going next. Uh, so yeah, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Uh, really pleased to introduce today's guest is Christoph Laputka. He's the author and creator of the Leviathan Chronicles. And if you aren't familiar with the series already, uh, shame on you. He's been doing it for uh, just a little over a year, maybe two years now. Um, it, it's just reaching the conclusion of the first season. And we thought, um, you know, talking about different audio series, this is a, a really phenomenal project and um, really pleased that at last be able to feature it on the show. Uh, Christoph, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, so, yeah, so there's a kind of lot of ground like to cover, but let's start at the, the kind of the very first question, which is uh, tell us about the Leviathan Chronicles. Uh, listeners will have heard, you know, just a sample from one of the early episodes. Uh, without giving it too many spoilers as to what happens, can you sort of just give a, an arc of the of the first season and what people can uh, expect if they want to listen to more episodes? Sure. The Leviathan Chronicles is about a young woman named McKellen Orsel, who's a genetic scientist in New York. And she discovers that she is related to uh, a group of immortals that have been living secretly uh, within the Marianas Trench. And uh, uh, several years ago, a rebellion within this underwater city called Leviathan took place, leaving half of the immortals uh, down under the ocean, uh, living in a, in a sort of utopian society, um, and, and, uh, and another group of immortals that rebelled that are now uh, living on the surface uh, secretly among humanity. So it's a little bit of a paradise lost story. But this one woman, McAllen Orsel, has the, the chance to perhaps bring peace to the two units. And what what makes the situation a little bit more complicated is a um, uh, a government group called the Black Door Group, which is kind of like a covert um, uh, black ops group of the CIA, has discovered the existence of these immortals and uh, and views them as a threat to U.S. sovereignty. So there's uh, it's really a, a three-way war going on, and McAllen is caught in the middle of it. And I think one of the things that makes Leviathan uh, distinct is that we we really strive to uh, to evoke different soundscapes from around the world. Leviathan ends up being a, a treasure hunt um, all across the globe, so we really try and create the streets of India, what it's like to be in a submarine in the South Pacific, uh, what's going on in Tokyo. Um, we really want people to feel that they're in these different locations that are, that are exotic, that are cool, and, uh, and hopefully our heroes are doing cool things that we wish we were doing. That's what makes it fun to listen yeah. to. Yeah, and that that's, uh, you know, certainly is what, you know, audio drama does so well is, is enables us to to transport ourselves to distant places and across the globe. And uh, one thing that I, I struck me on one of your uh, author's notes on one of the on one of the episodes, you talked about the uh, sort of the, the germination of the idea for the Leviathan Chronicles, which sounded sounded kind of fun. It seemed like uh, it was inspired by a scuba diving expedition or something That's like that. That's right. I was um, I was actually down in the Cayman Islands with a friend of mine, and we were we were cave diving, and we got into this um, this chamber, and it just was so incredibly serene. I mean, it was just like you know you find this little crack in an, in an underwater cliff, and you go inside, and and it was so still and so clear and so beautiful, and and you're just thinking nobody knows this little chamber exists you're in this this world that like if quite frankly if you die like no one's ever going to find you now in all fairness like i'm sure a lot of people found the little cave that we did but at that moment in time you felt so removed and this was in you know 100 and you know 120 130 feet of water um imagine what exists a thousand ten thousand thirty thousand feet underwater what what chambers what could still be hidden uh in the world which uh which you know People often complain that there is no discovery left on Earth. Well, there is so much. It's deep under the ocean. So once we have that rich, fertile ground of, um, of the unknown that, that exists so tangibly close to us, I thought that was really a great way to kick off the story um, of immortality. Yeah, and, and did you have any idea when you first got started how elaborate and how uh, quite gigantic a project it would become? Oh my God! It's like you know. It's like when you first have a child and you realize you have so much admiration for other parents and how <laughs> they've done. It. I mean, when I got into audio drama, I mean, I—I'll be completely honest. I didn't even really know the term audio drama. I didn't even know what to call myself. I just knew that I wanted to be a podcast. I wanted my work. Um, you know, when I was listening to some of the great work by you know Mer Lafferty, J.C. Hutchins, Scott Sigler, Seth Harwood, I was like, I—I I, I always wanted to be a writer. But I also wanted to bring something 
new to, you know, I, I thought I had something to contribute to what was kind of going on in the Podscape right now, and I wanted to create uh, sound effects and original music and hire local New York bands and, and, and create something that was very contemporary. Uh, and as I got into it, I realized that there's, that there's a great community of people that are already doing this, uh, and it's called Audio Drama. And, uh, and our goal was to kind of, you know, find a, find a niche within this world and, uh, and, and start making our, telling our story. Sure, and I, I think that's a really interesting part of your story because uh, you're almost sort of like poster child for what I want, what I'm dreaming we're going to see happen in audio drama, which is people who have an idea for, the, for a story use audio drama to produce it, and soon it will just be, you know, instead of being like, oh, what is audio drama, and having to tell the whole story of the medium, it'll be like, oh, uh, so-and-so's got a new story, I want to hear it. They're asking more about the story, and I think in a lot of ways, you, you, seem, you seem like you, you've been along that lines. Um, What's been your experience with this with this audio drama production? Have you have you found it difficult to learn the medium, or what was it like, sort of starting to work in this form? Well, I've you know, I I I'm really not as the the other a lot of the other audio drama artists I speak to deserve way 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 more credit than I do. Uh, I view myself as really being kind of an author and creator first, and uh, and to anybody thinking about doing audio drama, um, get help. There's nothing wrong, you know. You are not, you know. No man is an island. Like, like this is a team sport, and uh, and I'm incredibly lucky to, um, you know. As soon as I started getting into it, there's so many facets of audio drama. There's the writing, um, you know, and that that can be a full time effort. But then there's the casting and dealing with all the actors. And and you know, we do things a little bit differently in Leviathan, where we um, we do the majority of our recording live. In other words, we don't ask people to email in. Their different lines are actually recording it with our director, with with Nobi Nakanishi, or or on some occasions by myself. Um, you know, with the actor, working with them, getting takes, trying to get exactly the performance that that we want. Um, so I've got him helping me dealing with the actors and actresses that that are uh, part of our cast in Leviathan. That that really helps. And then um, you know, there's a, a sound studio called Silverstone Sound in New York that do primarily uh, movie work. They work uh, in the motion picture business, um, you know, helping uh, just really do rigging. They do sound. They do uh, all the foley. Um, and I came to them and said, hey, would you guys be interested in doing an audio drama? And they're like, wait, there's no video? Like, we can just create whatever we want? This was like this is like, you know, the best thing that I ever heard. So um, they became enthusiastic partners and, um, you know, and so they're able to help me a lot with the, um, you know, with the Foley and the effects and, and creating the soundscape and, you know, and then finding, and then, and then you, you think you understand actors, you think you sound effects, you think, you know, writing, and then you got music and then music is its whole, you know, is, is a whole big, uh, you know, different ball, ball of wax. And, and I'll be honest, the music was actually the hardest part for me because uh, I don't play any instruments. I'm not particularly musically inclined. So I found it incredibly challenging to communicate what I was looking for. Um, you know, it, I, I have a lot of bands coming in. I'm like, look, there's a scene where you're, where these two enforcers, these giant Hulk-like monsters are chasing our protagonists through the streets of Mumbai. There's a motorcycle and there's this, there's that. And they're like, okay, that's really cool, Christoph. Let us play our latest single. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I like your latest single and it rocks, but I need you to play something for this scene and, and, and customize it. And that, that's been very tough, and uh, I've been incredibly fortunate in some of our, our more recent episodes, actually most of our episodes, to uh, hook up with an artist named Eric Czar, who um, is, is just phenomenal at, at scoring and, uh, and really using, you know, actually, ver- you know, sometimes using very little music to create a very strong sense of mood and scene. Less is always more, I find. Yeah, no, no and I think uh, part of being a good creator, director, or producer, whatever you want to call it, the person who's sort of, you know, who's, who's putting their name, who's trying to really launch the product, is finding good people and, and knowing when to, and when, and knowing how to, you know, uh, make sure that the, the best people in their specialty help put something together. So tell me this, Christoph, so how far along the lines was uh, Leviathan before you're, you were able to start uh, producing episodes? Did you have the whole first season envisioned before you started, or did you have kind of a just a sense of where it was going to go, or, or you know, how did you get th- going on f- the first steps? We, um, I had most of season one sort of certainly mapped out, and uh, and and I write somewhat organically in in that um, I know you know I, I, chapter twenty five is which is our season finale is being produced right now, and I always knew exactly what I wanted to have happen in 
chapter 25. I knew there were certain scenes and certain, um, certain points along the graph that we needed to be in um, narratively. But um, uh, I didn't have the entire season scripted. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes when you have writer's block, what I always find is, you know, if I know there's one scene in a book, then I'm just going to write that one scene. I don't care if it's at the end, but usually this process of, of hitting the keyboard and writing um, provokes you to kind of get through that whatever writer's block you're feeling. So um, getting back to your question, the um, we had six episodes done, completed, maybe a little bit more than that, before we released an episode. And we thought we could get episodes out every, originally it was every 10 days. And we were we, we were just, so ridiculously stupid. I mean, it. You know, now we're we're lucky when we can get them out once a month. Um, we're trying to get it down to every three weeks, um, and it uh, it takes a lot longer to to do everything. Just getting all the actors together. I mean, if you had, you know, pick ten of your friends. And you said if you want to get if you want to have dinner with ten of your friends in one place at one time, hard to do that on a, you know a week or two weeks notice. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing things a little differently in season two. For your listeners that don't know, uh, season one of Leviathan Chronicles is, uh, is 25 chapters. Season two will also be 25 chapters, and that will represent the conclusion of the story. Um, I'm not going to be releasing any of season two until all 25 episodes are completed because I want people to be able to enjoy them on a more timely basis. Um, that's going to mean that it's probably going to be you know, probably close to uh, the end of this year or beginning of next year before season two hits. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to be releasing um, uh, mini episodes that are kind of going to be more like five to ten minutes long and a little bit more um, narratively based than audio drama based. Um, so they're going to be, it's going to be easier to get those out. And in addition to that, we're also going to be releasing uh, one to two hour special edition episodes. Um, and those are actually going to be selling for $1.99 on our new website. So, um, uh, again, the main story will always be available for free, but, um, but we are going to um, offer some additional storylines, some ancillary storylines uh, for, for, for uh, $1.99 on our new website. And so uh, tell us about uh, getting the word out, I guess. Uh, now you seem to have quite a, a decent following. You've got a really lively uh, Facebook fan page. You have, of course, a, a cool, very cool website that's attracted some attention just on that alone. Uh, and it seems like you're using some very interesting ways, uh, social media and, you know, basically the Internet and in, in creative ways to get a fan base going. Uh, you, you certainly are seem aware of the different patio book, uh, you know, the, the people who really tra- broke trail for patio books. So who did, you know, what, did, what did you learn from who? What did you apply? What's your experience been? You, you want to talk all, all about that sort of thing? Sure. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's a, you know, it's a job. I mean, it is absolutely part of your job as an author, a creator, uh, and an audio drama artist is promotion. Um, you need to realize that at least half of your time needs to be spent building your audience. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I knew that a little bit when I started, but I didn't fully realize um, the time commitment that it takes um, to answer, you know, all the emails that come in to, you know, to be active on Facebook, to be active on Twitter, um, it's um it, it's a lot and uh you know and really I just started listening to some of the things that Scott Sigler was doing and uh, I mean he's probably the most prolific uh, promoter but it's um you know it, it's really an important part of what you do and so I wanted to make sure that the website uh, that we created was one that would foster a sense of community and I think we did an okay job with it when we release episode 25 we're going to be releasing a uh, a really an all new built from scratch leviathan chronicles website um that is uh, going to have a more robust form section and uh um it's also going to have a lot more um uh kind of opportunities to to get some of the pieces of leviathan like there's uh, a ship called the hail mary and uh that's it's a it's a salvage craft that uh that McCallan goes on and you can buy some of the Hail Mary crew t shirts that, that would be on it. Um there's a uh, a bar within Leviathan called the Salty Squid and we're gonna be uh actually selling some of the salty squid beer mugs that look amazing. But a lot of a lot of that is, is you need to bring your listeners in to this sense of, of reality. You need to, you know, make them identify with you as an author, that you're real, that you're not this, you know, amorphous Stephen King entity. Um, and, and it's been, it's been really great. Um, I've got to 
to meet some wonderful fans, um, and and they end up caring about you as a person. And it, it sounds a little bit hokey, but I think your best marketing effort is to not just sell your work, but to let people in and, and sell yourself a little bit. And, you know, Facebook is, is so good about that because you, you know, you can just kind of talk about what's going on in your life and, and people, you know, identify with that. I'm a, I'm an incredibly avid traveler. That's, um, you know, just probably my, my, my biggest hobby. And a lot of Leviathan is based on places and adventures that I've had. I, I really enjoy scuba diving. I like paragliding. These are all, um, uh, uh scenes. These are all, these are all parts of Leviathan that happen. So, I think I think listeners enjoy seeing the connection between author and the final product that they're listening to, and be able to kind of have that insight into into the process. So that's you know I mean everything else I think has kind of been said. You know definitely use Facebook, definitely use Twitter, um, and you know and and reach out to the community that's there. Podcasting is such a fantastic community as, as audio drama is. I kind of lump them together, but people want to help. I love playing other people's promos. I love hearing what everybody's doing. I like, you know, I get excited when somebody says, hey, play, play my promo. You're not imposing on me. You're not, you know, it, it is my pleasure to play other people's promos. Uh, and, and I think 99% of the podcast community feels the same way. Um, so, you know, if you've got great work out there, just reach out to the other people that are doing it. They want to help right now because if one of us succeeds, we all succeed. Making people aware of audio drama is the biggest challenge we have. It's not the product. If you take most of the people off the street and you put a pair of earphones on them and hit play, they would love what they were hearing. The hardest part, we've got the best product in the world doing, you know, creating what we're, what we're creating. It's just creating an awareness. And that's what makes me really hopeful about the medium as well. Because it's not like anybody's you know, producing schlock. I'm really impressed at, at the creative community that we're a part of. It's just making more people aware of podcasting. Sure. No, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And that's kind of where I, I think we're at. And, you know, obviously, uh, and I wonder if you might give me some thoughts on this, on this subject. You know, nobody is at this rate is doing it for the money, you know, who, who's doing podcasting for the money. It, it's for the fan base. It's for... Uh, you know, maybe you can build some some money around the product, but you know, generally a lot of it is based on uh, putting out the shows for free. And you know, it's clear that there is costs, both time, labor, and of course, uh, money to produce the shows. And 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 how do you feel about that? I mean, do you do you feel that you've accomplished what you thought you would accomplish in podcasting? Um, do you do you see, you know, do you see another end uh, coming of Leviathan that you're hoping it'll take you, or are you just pleased with how? what you've gotten in payback in terms of fans and everything else so far. Yeah, you've really asked the million dollar question. Um uh you know, I'll be I'll be really really candid. I'm not even sure if I've said this before, but you know, when I really first started doing it, um I you know, I, I thought that I would I would start by giving the first um the first four episodes away for free and then we were going to start charging $1.99 for the rest of the episodes. And I and I kind of ran that by Scott Sigler. And, uh, and he's like, you're out of your mind. That is the stupidest idea. Do not do that. You need to give your podcast away for free. Um, that is the only way that you will grow an audience. And without an audience, you got nothing. You need to hit a certain critical mass because your best marketers are your fans. So um, you, you're, you're going you know, to kill the golden goose before you do anything by, by charging for your episodes. Um, and, you know, I... I did this originally because I wanted to be an author, and I saw that some people in the early days were, you know, podcasting their work for free, and then you get a book deal, and you know, the the podcast promotes the book deal. Maybe the book's a little different; you put some extra content in, but that was what it. That was the model, and and as I've gone through this now, um, I, I have a couple thoughts on this, but that's not my first priority. If that happens, if I get a book deal out of this. Hey, I, I couldn't be more pleased. But if you asked me if I could make, you know, a great living being an author, or if I could make a great living being uh, being a podcaster, I'd rather be a podcaster. I like this medium. I think it's more creative um, when you you know trying to put in the music, trying to create the mood. I love what I'm doing. Um, but it is, you know, it is it is expensive. Um, we actually because I always assumed that I would be going that 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 certain aspects of Leviathan would be commercialized. Um, we have always paid all of our actors. Um, we pay all our musicians. Uh, we pay our sound studio. So, um, so it, it, there, there is a real expense with every episode of Leviathan that goes out. Um, but 
But I also think I got some very good advice. You need to give it away for free. Um, otherwise, you'll never get your audience. So these two things are kind of at, at a crossroads. And then, then how does that work? Well, the model that I'm pursuing is, uh, is that we will always give Leviathan away for free. Um, a lot of people feel very adamantly that that this is a you know kind of a an ethos. You need to give it away for free. That's what podcasting is about. I totally agree, and I'm on board. Um, however, in between season one or two, uh, we're going to be releasing these special edition episodes for a dollar ninety nine. And the way that I view it is, um, it's kind of like imagine we got to see Star Wars for free, but if you wanted to learn Yoda's backstory. For dollar ninety nine, or if you wanted to see, you know, kind of, uh, you know, what the early, how the early Jedi's discovered lightsabers, like, you know, again, you're getting Star Wars for free, and you don't need to know Yoda's backstory to enjoy it. But if you want a little bit more, there's an option for you. Um, and I'm hoping that enough people find the storyline and the production quality compelling enough that they're that they're going to do this, that they're going to be patrons of uh, of Leviathan. Um, and when we get to season two, um, because all the episodes will be completed. We're going to give people a choice where you can get your episode for free every two weeks on time because they're all done. We won't have any long delays. Or you can pay $30 and get the entire season, all 25 episodes, all at once. And when you buy it all at once, you actually get what, what I call a director's cut, which is uh, there'll actually be about two hours of additional content in the, um, in, in, the, in the one big download. So again, if you want to listen for free, you will always get Leviathan for free. But if you don't want to wait two weeks to hear a whole storyline, if you want to race to read the book at the end, then, then you do have that option. Um, and I think that's the balance that, um, that I've tried to walk. And you know, with publishing in such a decline right now, you know, there, for the, or your listeners that don't know, there was a, a really prolific podcaster, an incredibly talented guy named J.C. Hutchins, who put out Seventh Son uh, in a book called uh, Personal Effects Stark Arts, which I can't recommend enough. But he um, unfortunately has, uh, now I, don't, I don't want to put words in his mouth or describe, but essentially has kind of lost a little bit of faith right now in the podcast for free, charge for your published novel model. And, and there really needs to be a new model. Um, and you need to figure out a way where what I was doing differently is I always wanted to be able to charge for my podcast. Um, and I think that's what everybody wants to do, and that's really hard to do. So I think you need to have enough success with your basic podcast. It needs to be free that you can you know, also offer additional content, um, a premium product um, that you can charge a little bit for. And I think that's, that's the balance. That's what I'm going to do. I could crash and burn in a huge way. Um, but, that, but that's my hope. Yeah, no, I, I and I think that's where we're all at, you know, as as a as a medium, you know, uh, and, and it's interesting because you do cross the line, you know. Often, a lot of times, we hear from radio drama or audio drama folks who have really stayed in the audio audio drama, you know, space, and and you know, you're really sort of crossing boundaries a lot. You know, you're you're entering the audio book space, which then brings us back to the, the regular publishing industry. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think of something like Leviathan Chronicles, and it's something that could be a television series, and is a really interesting model um, for people who, who for people who are in TV to think about. Hey, is this a different way we could look at at, at putting out a series? Could we learn something from these podcasters? Um, you know, I, I think about something like Lost, which is a TV show, but then they have a ad-supported version of it you can watch it's kind of a pain or you can go to itunes and apparently people are buying them because you can still you know purchase an episode sans commercials for you know 2.99 and people and people buy it so i, I think i think what what you're talking about is really this that i think that's that's it's got to be something like that where podcasting there's a way for it to become a, something premium about it that makes it worthwhile to people um i'll be right I think people like the idea of uh, of paying. I think people are willing to pay to consume in a more convenient manner. Like, you know what? Hey, I like Leviathan, dude. I'm ready to pay. Just I want all the episodes at once. I don't want to wait. You know, to wait. I mean, that I, I think they, they they understand what they're getting for it, and and they're willing to do that. Um, believe it or not, um, I just got back from Los Angeles, and uh, one of the fans of Leviathan was actually uh, uh, is actually a producer on Lost, and so I got to actually go on the set of Lost. And um, it was uh, it was it was a great time. We talked about Leviathan being a, a TV show, and you know, obviously that would be terrific. I, I'd love that opportunity, um, and uh, and that's something that can happen. I mean, if you you know, there's not a lot of original content getting produced right now in Hollywood, and and you know, especially within 
you know, with sci-fi. I mean, sci-fi is profitable. I mean, when you talk about what the big movies are, you know, or what the big television shows are, you listen to, you know, Battlestar Galacta, you see it with Avatar, you see it with Batman the Dark Knight. I mean, like, like when sci-fi works, I mean, it pays for, you know, the budget for a studio for the year. So, um, you know, coming up with original, interesting sci-fi is definitely something that, you know, has kind of arrived uh, in the Hollywood world, where before it was a little bit more just a, uh, you know, relegated to geek culture, and now I think it's pretty mainstream. Yeah, ab- absolutely, which is maybe says something about our technological age, or maybe just says, you know, what people like, but, um, you know, being a fan of sci-fi myself, I'm all for it. Absolutely. And I, th- and I think sci-fi, what's good, and what we try and do with Leviathan, too, I mean, sci-fi, in all fairness, too, has also gotten more intelligent. I mean, I think it's gotten, I believe science fiction is at, is at its best when it's more realistic, when it's darker. Um, and, you know, and all the, all the hardcore sci-fi guys, all the hardcore sci-fi guys totally know what I'm talking about. But, you know, it was probably pretty hard to get uh, the Dark Knight produced with a truly psychopathic Joker that just, you know, scares the willies out of you. I mean, it, it was a dark show. I mean... Uh, you know, with X-Men. I mean, it was, it's getting darker. And that's resonating with people because I think when it's darker, it's more realistic. And people want an escape. And what audio drama does better than, you know, traditional podcasting is, boy, we can give an escape like no one else has ever heard. And when you're driving, when you're going to that job that you don't want to go to, that's when I listen to podcasting. I did not want to go to my banking job. And I wanted to, you know, get lost in these wonderful worlds that some of these authors were creating. And, uh, you know, I think that can translate very well to, uh, to other mediums like television. No, oh, absolutely. Well, Christoph, thanks so much for your time. Now, I think by about the time this will, interview will be airing, people will be able to uh, download the latest, uh, the, conclu- the conclusion of the se- season with episode 25 at the brand new LeviathanChronicles.com. Uh, that's right. It's uh, LeviathanChronicles.com, or you can just go to iTunes and type in Leviathan Chronicles, and you can download our podcast there as well. Awesome. Well, Christoph, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time and your, your insights, and uh, keep us informed as, as to what happens. It's a great series. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, look forward to uh, meeting some of your fans. And that was Christoph Laputka of the Leviathan Chronicles, leviathanchronicles.com. Leviathan, like that really big monster of the oceans. Check out the site for plenty more audio awesomeness. Thank you so much, Christoph, for this excellent series. Let's hope we keep the momentum going. Anyways, uh, while you wait for the next show, do check out the blog and podcast at radiodramarevival.com. More news, reviews, and discussion up there. You can also find us on iTunes. Search for Radio Drama Revival. That wraps it up for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalgh. Copyright of individual shows remains to their original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG-FM, Greater Portland, Maine's Community Radio, it is podcast at radiodramarevival.com and labor love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week. <laughs>